Hello, baseball fans. Welcome to Sully Baseball. This is the podcast where there is no offseason. We're talking about baseball 52 weeks out of the year. I'm your host, Paul Francis Sullivan. Please call me Sully. I'm recording this on the 23rd day of August 2017 from the Sully Baseball Studio in Pasadena, California, overlooking the historic Rose Bowl. I'm going to talk a little bit today about the Red Sox. I don't always talk about the Red Sox. I've talked about many, many teams other than the Red Sox. But the Red Sox are a noteworthy team. They have the second best record in the American League right now. They won an important game against the Cleveland Indians last night after a pretty heartbreaking loss the night before. And uh, the... John Farrell is still the manager of the team. Some people have mixed thoughts about that. I don't think they should change the manager now, but if we found out in the offseason that John Farrell was promoted to the vice president of Franks and Beans and Beans and Franks in the front office and a new manager had come in to the Boston Red Sox, let's just say your pal Sully would not cry. Now, there's some things that I've heard, however, in terms of rumors of a player who is currently under contract with another club, and that is Mr. Giancarlo Stanton. Now, Giancarlo Stanton, formerly Mike, why you would ever go by Mike when his name is Giancarlo Cruz Michael Stanton. Dude, you're Giancarlo Stanton. That's just a phenomenal name. He is having a season where he could very well be the most valuable player in the National League. He is, as I'm recording this, he probably has more by the time you're listening to this, he has 46 home runs, which is leading all of baseball. He already has 99 runs bad in, if you still like them. He leads the league in slugging at 646. His OPS is 1.026. He is, if you're, you know, he is just having an outstanding season. He should be on the short list of players who should be up for the most valuable player. You could probably make a uh, solid argument for him being the most valuable player this year um, in terms of the National League. I would lean towards, I think, Nolan Arenado of Colorado, uh, Paul Goldschmidt of Arizona, and Stanton of Miami. And I think you can make an argument for Joey Votto. You know, they'll never vote for him because the Reds stink. But Joey Votto should be at least get consideration for the MVP. And maybe they'll give, maybe Scherzer, who's uh, who's going to win the Cy Young Award. But, I mean, I think it's, it, it's probably going to go to a position player. And with that being the case, I believe that it'll, it's going to be either Stanton, Arenado, or Goldschmidt. And I think that if... You look up and you see the that um, Goldschmidt has. I'm sorry. If you see that Stanton, pardon me, has hit sixty some on homers, then I, I think he'll get it. Whether or not I think he deserves it or not, I think that if he clears sixty home runs this year and he's only fourteen away from doing that, I think he'll win the National League Most Valuable Player award. Personally, your pal Sully is leaning towards Nolan Arenado, but that's neither here nor there. He's having a remarkable season. 
Now, one thing I want to put a kibosh on right now. Now, whether or not you are a fan of Bonds or of Sosa or of Maguire, the mark of 61 homers has been passed. So the people say if he hits 62 home runs, is he the true single-season home run leader? No, he's not. The It's Bonds. I can show you. I can point to you the numbers. You may not like that. You may not like the circumstances that he hit those home runs in. That's a different argument. You may say, I, I'm still, I'm, you could say, I'm more impressed by the 62 home runs that Stanton hit as opposed to the 73 home runs that Bonds hit. You could say that. Absolutely. The same way that hitting a home run off of Scherzer or Clayton Kershaw is more impressive than some schmuck they just brought up from Pawtucket who, you know, who's just chucking off the middle of the plate. If you have someone who never strikes out, like Tony Gwynn, you know, getting a strikeout against him is more impressive than getting two strikeouts out of Aaron Judge, who's struck out twice since this podcast began, and it's only 11 o'clock in the morning. So you could make the argument that I am more impressed by Stanton's home runs than by Bonds' home runs, than by Sosa's home runs, than by McGuire's home runs. That's fine. I'm sure there are people, when Maris hit his 61 home runs, said I am more impressed by his home runs, than uh, Babe Ruth's home runs, than Maris's home runs. I guarantee you the times of Babe Ruth, when the ball was wound tighter, it was a spotless white ball, you say, I found the home runs by home run, Frank Home Run Baker to be more impressive than that of Babe Ruth's. We can keep going back and back. And there are some stats that seem malleable. There's, I'm use, I use Fangraph War. I use Baseball Reference War. But the fact of the matter is that the, the record is held by Bonds. There's no special, we have a record here for this and that. These are the circumstances he hit them in. And you may not like it, but th- that's how the it has been recorded. Armando Galarraga should have had a perfect game. The replay showed he had a perfect game. The call was blown at first. But it goes down in the record book as it's not a perfect game. The 1919 White Sox through the World Series. The Cincinnati Reds are recorded as the world champions of 1919. At least steroid users were trying to win. Who knows what would have happened in 1987 if the Cincinnati Reds didn't have Pete Rose managing them, betting on God knows what, and they had an absolute nosedive at the end of the season, would they have been the NL West champions? Do you look at the NL West championship that the San Francisco Giants won that year and so I don't accept that. So I don't want to hear any, oh, this is the real record. You can say you're more impressed by it. Sure, absolutely. Done. That's a, then that's a matter of opinion for you. But he has to do it first. But there's another thing I don't want to hear about, and that's I'm hearing the idea that Stanton could be traded. Now, it's not going to happen right away. 
You got new ownership coming in. There's no way they're going to come in and be the first thing that they do is dump the most marketable player they have on the team. That's just not going to happen. But the other thing is I, I personally hope he sticks around for at least 2018 and 2019. And it's a completely irrational reason that I want him to, but it's it's true. And that is I have a thing for players playing 10 years for a team. If you could play 10 years for a team, especially in the free agency era, that's really all you can really ask for. Anything more than that, that's it's a full decade you had with a player, and he is two years away from doing that. And part of me is like, I'm play two more years in Miami. And then after that, he'll go wherever he needs to go. But just have him be so he can break every record. He can be the greatest Marlin of all time. And Marlin fans have a Marlin that can point to and say, yeah, he's been a Marlin all this time. And it's irrational, I grant you. Pedro Martinez didn't play 10 years with the Red Sox. There's plenty of players who didn't play 10 years. You still associate with them. But do you know what? I just would like to see that just for my own personal sense of insanity. But he's got a big honking contract. Forget 10 years. Forget making it through the 2019 season. He has a contract through the 2028 season. Now, he has a, he can opt out of the contract after the 2020 season. So if the Marlins hang on to this contract right through the you know the end of it, he'll have played 11 seasons as a Miami Marlin. Your pal Sully has nothing left to worry about. His contract is gigantic. It's gargantuan. You know, I mean, he's it's it's got he still has like 285 million or something left on it. Left. You know, he's got all of 2018, 19, 20, 21, 22, 23, 24, 25, 26, 27, 28, 20, and yeah, to 28. That's a lot. I mean, that's one president. That's that's three presidential elections from now. He'll still be under this contract. Age 38. His last full guaranteed season, if he doesn't do the opt-out in 2020, he'll be 37 years old. He'll be 30 years old when he can opt out of that. Why the hell would you opt out of that? One, two, three, four, five, six, seven. If you're a 30-year-old, knowing what we know about baseball now, if you're a 30-year-old, you hit the open market. Do you think someone's going to give you a seven-year deal? You'll be lucky if you get a three-year deal. I don't care who the hell you are. I don't care if you're Mike Trout. People don't hand out huge contracts to people who've already blown out 30 candles on their, birth, on their birthday cake. Do you know why? Because players break down in their 30s. It's no longer the era of Sosa, McGuire, and Bonds where for some mysterious reason they get healthier in their 30s. Who they are in their 20s is their prime. They're healthiest. And what they are in their 30s, he'll be a DH. Look what the, look what's going on with the Angels and Albert Pujols. You think they want to get out of that contract? You think they would sell their soul to get the hell out of that contract? Absolutely they would. The Marlins signed this, and you know, Laurie is going to get the hell out of there. It's not, not going to be his money anymore. 
He could have signed until a billion. You know what? He 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 signed until the until the Earth collides with Jupiter. So he's he's going to have this massive contract. It's probably going to be with the Marlins because who the hell would trade for that? Ah, that's why I'm bringing the Red Sox back up again. I'm hearing. Yeah, Red Sox fans, I heard talk on the Bill Simmons podcast, heard people wondering, should the Red Sox get in on this? Should the Red Sox try to trade for Giancarlo Stanton? And uh, I'm as big a Red Sox fan as you will meet. It's my team. It has been my team for all these years, even though I haven't lived in Massachusetts since the spring of 1987. I haven't lived in New England at all since then, say for a few months in Connecticut with my cousin in 1994. And yet all these years later, living in California, living in New York, moving back to California, living in Silicon Valley, living here in Los Angeles County, I've never dropped the Red Sox. Ever. So I think my standing as a Red Sox fan is secure. And let me tell you something. I adore what is happening with this Red Sox team. What this Red Sox team is doing now is they're building a product from within with homegrown players. You know, you have Mookie Betts, who is turning into, uh, you know, uh, he's going to be an all-star, looks like, for years to come. If you look at the, you know, the catching situation of Leon and Vasquez. You had second base, you have Pedroia, even though right now Nunez is filling in wonderfully. Bogart's at short. Devers at third. And outfield of Betts, Bradley, Benatendi. They're building a team from within. The Red Sox can use their deep pockets to keep this team together. You can look up and say, hey, look at that. We've got this team. We love them. They've been there for years and years. You know, there won't be the patchwork team in 2004 and 2013. I love both of those teams to death, but they were made of mercenaries. Guys who showed up a couple of years before, gone a couple of years after that. Now they have a chance to build a team from within and have it be a completely new team and have it be a team that you can completely get behind. Now, the only there, there are two reasons why the Marlins would want to trade Giancarlo Stanton. One is salary relief. They want to get out from this horrific contract. He's getting that money no matter what. So it's not an issue of, oh, I, you know, I hope we don't have to pay him. He's going to be paid no matter what. So you would like someone else to pay for it. The other reason to trade him is the Marlins farm system is kind of sort of bare. And they want to rebuild the team to start from the beginning. Kind of what the White Sox did. when they Why did they trade Chris Sale? Because they knew they were going nowhere in a hurry. And they could get good players back for them. So the Marlins want to rebuild their team. And if they want to rebuild their team, they'll want to have one of those players I said. Mookie Betts, Andrew Benatendi, Rafael Devers. At least one of them is heading to Miami. Why? So you can get the big, huge slugger? You're putting together a wonderful team built from the ground up. They'll be just beloved in all of Boston, and you're going to make a run for, for Stanton? Oh, but Sully, 
Think of how great Stanton would be in Boston. Yeah, let's talk about that for a second, shall we? Let's be seduced by his season where he's playing out of his mind. As we still send checks to Pablo Sandoval for the next bunch of years from the play in San Francisco. Now, Stanton is a much better player than Pablo Sandoval. But let's look at a principle for a second. What did I just say? What happens to sluggers in their 30s? They tend to decline. He is going to be paid through his late 30s. A guy with zero goodwill in the bank in Boston. And let's take another little thing. Let's take a look at in 2012, in 2013, in 2015, in 2016, he missed time due to injury. In each one of those years, I just said. Last year, he had a down season. This year, he's playing like an MVP. He has an on-again, off-again career with a lot of time on the DL. And yes, some of those stints on the DL have been flukes. He got hit in the face with a pitch. But when you keep seeing players going on the disabled list while they're in their 20s, what the hell do you think is going to happen in their 30s? It's going to get worse in his 30s. He's 27 now. Is it worth trading a player who could be an all-star for years to come, homegrown, fan favorite, for a guy who is going to be an albatross, even for the Red Sox, even for a big market, big money team like the Red Sox, having to pay when he's 33, 34, 35 years old, he's going to be making $32 million. Now, by the way, salaries have been increasing over the years. Who knows? That might be what it costs to get a middle infielder. I don't know, and neither do you. But do you honestly think that they're going to be getting his best years? Do you honestly think he won't be injury-prone in his 30s? No, he will be. If the Red Sox want a big, huge, honking power hitter, right-handed power hitter, I get it. The Red Sox are going to win the division have the lowest amount of home runs in the American League. That's insane. They play in Fenway Park. They should be hitting home runs left and right and center and into the gap. So I understand what this is about. The Red Sox don't have Big Poppy anymore. They don't have the big, huge honking slugger in their lineup anymore. As I said, they're probably going to win the American League East and do so by hitting doubles into the gap and stealing bases. It would be nice if they had a big honking slugger right in the middle of their lineup. But it is not worth trading away one of the key pieces on the team. And it is not worth having a decade of a slugger who's having an unbelievable season this year, but usually if you take a look at it, what he does... You're going to miss him a big chunk of each year he's going to play. Is that fair? I don't know. He's played 150 games once in his career. Once. When he was 21 years old. If he does it again this year, it'll be the second time in his career. Second time in eight years. Why do we think that will increase? Why do you think he will 
reverse the aging process, the healing process. If they sign them, they better supply them with performance-enhancing drugs, stat, for the healing. If the Red Sox want that huge slugger, then here's what you do. It's almost borderline comically simple. You draft. You go to the international free agent market. You find out who's floating on a raft from Cuba, who's big in the Dominican, who's hitting slugging home runs in Japan. Go around the world. Draft every star college player, every right-handed power-hitting high schooler with lots of raw ability. Draft and try, use your first four picks for the next few years. Drafting college and high school players and sign everyone out of Cuba. And I guarantee you, you'll spend a hell of a lot less money than the $280 million some odd dollars you'd spend to watch Giancarlo Stanton decline in a Boston uniform. How many times do we have to see this? How many times do we have to go over this? Every time there's a contract that everyone says, this is the worst contract in baseball history, you'll see people who were applauding it when it was signed. Oh, wow, this is great. All right, I did it with Sandoval. I knew that was going to suck for the beginning. But I was cheering the Carl Crawford trade. People were applauding Vernon Wells when he signed that long-term deal with the Blue Jays. Yeah, there are Cardinal fans dismayed when Pujols signed with the Cardinals. How many of these contracts, even A-Rod's extension, after he won the MVP in 07, and he signed that big honking extension. I, even that one, which looked like the most surefire one, by the end was a disaster. How many times do we have to see this? And this would be signing a player who has had a checkered injury past to an 11-year contract where he's got $30 million a year coming to some of those years, would you sign him for that? No. Would you sign him for that and give up Raphael Devers or Betts? It's insane that this is even a conversation. This is insane that anyone said, well, I don't know if he hits those home runs. What? He hits those home runs. What? They'd be in first place? They are in first place. Develop a right-handed slugger. Do it in a way you don't have to sign someone. I'm telling you, if I said, hey, here's a guy, he's in his late 20s, how many more years? And he's got, I'm going to sign him to an 11-year deal. You know I mean, what GM wouldn't automatically lose their job if they did that? And this is being talked about casually amongst Red Sox fans. It's insane. Stop it. Stop it! They're going to win back-to-back -back division titles and regroup. If they need to put in a right-handed power hitter, go find a solution. Go find a way. Look, at, we weren't expecting Nunez to do this. We weren't expecting Devers to do this. There are ways to do this without blowing the bank open. And then not throw another name on the, hey, he had good numbers with this team, but when with Boston, he just was a big financial 
money vampire, which is what he will be. Except without any goodwill in the bank, like he has in Miami. I hope he gets those 62 home runs. Don't call it a new record, it isn't, but it'll be a lot of fun. I just don't want to see eight or nine years from now articles about, well, when does this Stanton contract end anyway? Gee whiz. I don't want to see that. I don't understand how anyone could. Hey, I want to bring something up. It's not as fun as this, but I, you know, I, I can't help but mention it. I, I've talked, and I'm not going to go long on this, this topic here, but I've long talked about how I believe the name Yawkey Way in Boston should be changed. Should be changed back to Jersey Street or maybe, you know, to honor another Red Sox. But I do not believe we need to honor Tom Yawkey or the Yawkey family. They've had a lot of honoring in their life. They had a street named after them. Yawkey's plaque is in the Hall of Fame. There's all sorts of honoring. Tom and Gene Yawkey, for all they know, they're dead now. They're mulch. And they died beloved in Boston. And feeling that their name was going to be honored. Okay? So don't worry about their feelings. The worms that ate them are dead. But I don't think they should be honored. And there's a talk about maybe changing the street back to Jersey Street, which is what it was before, or something else. I'm 100% for that. I'm also 100% for getting a crowbar and popping off all plaques and monuments to Yawkey in Fenway Park and taking his plaque down in the Hall of Fame. I've not been subtle about this over the years. Now, of course, this conversation has been brought up on other topics and other subjects regarding statues and monuments and what does that mean and what does that mean. Now, a monument, a statue, a plaque, uh, naming a street, naming a park after someone, is endorsing that person. You are holding this person, in terms of a statue, literally on a pedestal. You are making something to admire someone. You are making someone to honor someone. Now, removing Yorkie's name from a street, from a plaque, from a statue, from whatever, is not erasing history. It's not erasing a memory. Those of you who say that taking down monuments and statues and plaques and all this erase history, you are going to be overwhelmed and excited when you learn about the invention of a book. You know, we don't have a statue of a kamikaze pilot at Pearl Harbor. We don't have a statue of Joseph McCarthy in front of the U.S. Capitol. You know, we don't have, we don't have pictures of, you know, we don't honor the people that history has frowned upon. And putting a street name, I mean, there's no, we don't put street names to people who we dishonor. There's no Osama bin Laden street in New York. Now, Yorkie was, I mean, I've, we've gone through the racism, 
the institutional racism, the lack of integration, losing a, a racial discrimination suit in the 80s. You know how hard that is to do? That this became a, a living monument to segregation. And the Red Sox were the, the main holdouts. When they could have had Willie Mays, they could have had Frank Robinson, they could have had Jackie Robinson. Willie Mays wasn't their kind of player. And then it continued for generations. And if that's not enough for you, and it shouldn't be, they enabled a serial child molester who attacked kids in Red Sox clubhouses. And everyone knew about it. And the Yawkeys knew about it. And they did nothing about it. Read about Mr. Fitzpatrick and the history of the Red Sox and the Yawkeys looking the other way. You might say that, oh, it was a different time or whatever. I don't care. Different time, my ass. Segregation was always wrong. Racism was always wrong. Child molestation is always wrong. And if it's a different time, then the time we honor them has passed on. And putting something up in their honor is, by definition, celebrating them. They have been celebrated. They have been. And most of the people who worked with them and interacted with them are either old or dead. So let's not worry about offending them. They've had decades of having people shower, oh, we love the Yawkeys, we love the Yawkeys, they did so much, they did so much. All right, hope you all enjoyed it. It's over now. Boston's a better city than it was before. You saw that in the counter-protests. Not saying that Boston doesn't have a ton of racism problems or this, that, or the other thing. But let's try to be better. And first step of, not, of, of improving is saying, hey, why do we not honor people who did shitty things? That's step one. Step one. It's a very small step. Hurts nobody, helps others. So, Jersey Street. Let's call it that from now on, shall we? Hey, um, let's figure out what team should have won. Uh, I'm running out of teams here, so I'm going to go to St. Louis Cardinals. And one of the things about the Cardinals is that they have had several eras in their history, whether it's the Roger Hornsby era, whether it's the Gas House Gang era, the Stan Musial era, the Bob Gibson, Lou Brock era, the, the Ozzie Smith, Bruce Souter era, the Tony La Russa era, the, you know, the, the, more, the more modern times of the Albert Pujols and everything, that this Cardinals squad seems to find times to win championships. And other than the Yankees, have been historically the most consistent and most fruitful world championship franchises that you will ever find. And they have an outside chance of winning this year, although yeah, they're starting to fade a little bit. I'm starting to think the Cubs are just going to ultimately put on the aft thrusters. But the Cardinals have a lot of talent, and like the Red Sox, they're not an overly sentimental team. They'll dump players if they feel that their time is over, and they'll immediately rebuild. And they've done that all throughout their history. 
and they've recovered quite well, thank you very much. Every time a major superstar leaves, a great era of championships is right around the corner. So being a Cardinal fan, uh, it's a time where you can pretty consistently rely that you're going to have a quality team on the field and trips to the postseason and even pennants will come in healthy doses. So trying to find the team that should have won in that bunch was kind of hard. But I narrowed it down to two. Uh, And again, I'm keeping these in the eras that I remembered them. So I'm not going to go back to the 1968 championship, and I'm not going to go back to, you know, a year here or a year there in the with a stand usual. But there are two years that came to mind that, that I felt were worth bringing up. Now, one is a weird one, because it's 2005. Now, this goes a little bit to showing the nature of these teams that should have won in that it's not just a year that, you know, oh, they haven't won a long time before this or after this. They won the World Series in 2006, the the exact year after the one I'm picking. But there is something about that 2016 that kind of stumbled their way into the postseason, and a lot of Cardinal fans even were kind of soured on the team and kind of shrugged when the playoffs started. Like, oh man, they barely snuck in with a, what, 83-84 wins. It was one of the lowest win totals of any division winner ever in the history of baseball. And then they caught the Padres napping. They got the called third strike on Carlos Beltran. And then the Tigers made <laughs> started throwing the ball all over creation. And next thing you know, a team that really wasn't that good. You know, we're on the backs of people like Jeff Supon and Jeff Weaver. And with a young Adam Wainwright closing out games, and next thing you know, you know, Eckstein's the big power-hitting champion, and the Cardinals win the World Series. Now, the year before, they looked more like World Series winners. They were coming off of the sweep in the World Series by the Red Sox in 04 and had a bit of a chip on their shoulder. It was also the final season in Bush Stadium. And look, at the new Bush Stadium seems fine, and they've already had two world championships there and a spectacular World Series in 2011, but I don't think it has any character. I can't tell the difference between that Bush Stadium and the stadium in Washington, the stadium in Minnesota, and the stadium in Philadelphia. They all look the same to me. They all look identical. I want them to keep the old Bush Stadium so we had at least one circular donut stadium left. It's funny that it was a unique look by the end because all the other ones were gone. But, alas, the final year in Bush Stadium, Bush Stadium 2, I guess is what they're calling it, should have been a world championship year. They won 100 games. They won 100 games for Tony La Russa. It was also Larry Walker's last year with the Cardinals and Reggie Sanders' last year with the Cardinals. Now, Sanders had won a championship with the um, uh, Diamondbacks a few years before, but Larry Walker never won one. And I think everyone who was a part of that 94 Expos team deserved at least one championship. And you had, you know, Carpenter having a great year. And you also had Mulder, who was hurt in the 2006 World Series year. You had Isringhausen, who was hurt in the 2006 year. You had those two former Moneyball A's, who wound up getting rings as part of the 2006 championship. But they were, they didn't play in it. And so you had this this 
strange you know, had this team that was much better than the 2016. You have Pujols having one of his best seasons all around. His 41 home runs, he batted 330, his OPS was 1.039. Tremendous season from Albert Pujols, MVP season from him. You had Edmonds, who won the World Series the next year, but he had one of his best seasons with his spectacular defense, his 29 home runs, his 918 OPS. You had all these players, and you had the biggest memory that anyone had of that postseason in 2005, one where the White Sox wound up beating the Astros, was what? What's the image that people have of that? Is it the White Sox winning the championship? Is it the Astros winning the pennant? No! It's Pujols' home run off of Brad Lidge. The Cardinals run out away from an elimination. He hit a home run that ricocheted off of Neptune. And if they had went on to win the World Series, that would, I mean, it's already a memorable home run. That would be one of the classic moments of baseball history. Said they lost the next game. The World Series happened. And I remember it was actually a good World Series for a sweep. The games were close. But no one remembers that. They remember the Pujols home run. And no one remembers the Cardinals winning the next year because it was such a weird, unmemorable World Series. I had a conversation with a guy at a place I worked with who was a diehard Cardinal fan. And this was in 2008, I believe. And he was talking about his frustration with the Cardinals. I said, man, I'm still waiting since 82. And I looked at him, what are you talking about? They won the World Series in 2006. And he said, oh, yeah, I forgot. He forgot! He forgot that his team won the World Series. 2005 team was a 100-win team. Would have been an all-time classic Cardinal team. Instead... They fall short, and then the next team, a completely forgettable team, winds up winning it. The 05 team should have been the one to win, not the 06 team. That's how it works. That's how the system works. But is that the team that I'm saying should have won? No. No. And Cubs fan with an eight who's keeping track of this, I may be overlapping, I can't remember. But the team that should have won. Because a bunch of these players did not win the next year or the year after. It was a year that despite winning two World Series championships since this time, is something that still sticks in the craw. Like a, like a piece of orange rind stuck between two teeth of many of the Cardinal fans I know. In that year... It's 1985. 1985, the St. Louis Cardinals won 101 games. They beat the Mets, who were, on all accounts, a superstar team everyone knew was eventually going to win, but they beat them. And then won an out-of-their-mind out dramatic league championship series with the Los Angeles Dodgers, including the walk-off home run by Ozzie Smith, of all people, and Jack Clark's badass home run off of Tom Niedenfuhr in Game 6. They won the pennant that year. And they went on to face not the Blue Jays, who were the most talented team in the AL, but their compadres in Kansas City in the World Series. And they took a three-game-to-one lead, and it looked like it was all done. Danny Jackson throws the complete game in Game 5, extending to Game 6. And in Game 6, 
the terrible call at first base by Denkinger. But that shouldn't have been the difference. But in the end, it opened up the floodgates. And next thing you know, the Royals won the World Series. The next day, the, the Cardinals lost 11 nothing, And they were just completely deflated. And Cardinal fans were bitter about that for years and years. And it even had a little bit of residue in, in 87 when they got to Game 7 of the World Series again. And, and there was bad calls, actually bad calls going both ways in that World Series. And they lost that to Minnesota. But that was an injury-depleted team that limped into the World Series. The 85 squad, which granted lost Vince Coleman and his 110 stolen bases in the League Championship Series due to an injury, a weird injury with a tarp. But Jack Clark was on that team. Huge slugger who basically put the dagger in the Dodgers' hearts that year. That was his lone trip to the World Series. He was on the 87 team. He made one appearance in the postseason as a pinch hitter, but he was not. He was hurt. Terry Pendleton, all those years with St. Louis, all those years with Atlanta, never was on a World Series winner. Andy Van Slyke, all those years in Pittsburgh, never was on a World Series winner. Yvonne De Jesus was on that team. Veteran for years and years and years. Now only remembered for being on the wrong end of the Ryan Sandberg trade. You had a lot of classic Cardinal pitchers, whether it was John Tudor, who actually went on to win a series with the Dodgers. Danny Cox went on to win one with the Blue Jays. Bill Campbell. Bill Campbell from my old Red Sox years in the late 70s was on that team. Young Todd Worrell was the dominant young closer on that. There was a lot of veterans on that team who this would have been their first and only World Series title. And that would have been a victory in that year. It would have basically have cemented the Cardinals in the conversation for the team of the decade. As it were, the Dodgers became the only team to win two championships in the 1980s. But they did so with two wildly different teams in 81 and 88. There were enough crossover players, whether it was Daryl Porter, whether it was Willie McGee, Joaquin Anahar, Ozzie Smith, who were on both teams. But man, oh man, Bob Forsh was on both teams too. But I think the late Bob Forsh, I think, is still playing for them, even though it doesn't make sense. But instead, the Dankinger call was the only thing anyone remembers from that team and the frustration that it brewed amongst Cardinal fans who didn't win another title until 2006. They won another one in 2011, and yet still people are angry about that, and I think partly because they know the quality of that team and what that team meant and how good that team was. And it was a quintessential Cardinal team. And they didn't win it. And with that, I declare the 85 Cardinals are the team that should have won. So... Go to SullyBaseball.com, like me on Facebook, subscribe on iTunes, SoundCloud, YouTube, Twitter, Stitcher, Instagram. I'm everywhere. The music is by Ted Thacker, and it's also by Patrick Kaliski. This has been a Sully Baseball Daily Podcast that I'm recording today on the 23rd day of August 2017. I'm your host, Paul Francis Sullivan. Hey, do you know what you can do? You can call me Sully.